Hey everybody, welcome to episode one. Congrats on making it. It's a good start. <laughs> uh, in this episode, we're going to start uh, with Chris's story. Chris's story is not just what he has been through from start to finish and the things in between, uh, but it is also what our entire family has journeyed through with him. That is the good, the bad, and the ugly. You're going to hear a lot of it, but we definitely felt it important for you to have this context before we actually dive into most of the education that you're going to see. You'll hear some education as we go through this. Uh, Chris pauses when he knows there's something important. I would say for families, friends, uh, whoever the loved ones are out there, I'm going to do my best to ask throughout this uh, series and through as many episodes as we can get through uh, the questions that I think we as the people who have not been through addiction and alcoholism may be thinking or wanting to know more. I definitely will do my best for you. For those that are either addicted um, or alcoholics or are in recovery on your own, uh, please listen to Chris. He is recovered. He's gone through a lot. He definitely has some great advice and uh, he's just um, got some knowledge that even I continue to, to really want to learn more about. So it should be really exciting. We're going to go through uh, his kind of earlier years, his first experiences. We're going to give you some insight into what our entire family went through, where we um, may have wanted to weigh in, where we may have made mistakes. Uh, we run the whole gamut, which is part of the game. Uh, you're going to learn very quickly that Chris's story looks very, very similar to other addict and alcoholic stories. Um, as we as we go through this and as you learn more. Um, and we definitely encourage you to sit through the entire episode because it, it really does encompass uh, the progression of the drugs and alcohol he did use. Uh, we touch on overdose, we touch on relapse, we touch on rehab, detox. There's so much to the story. Um, and we purposely wanted to build this out for you uh, so that you have a foundation for when we move forward um, through the facts and through bringing you what we, we really truly believe that you need. So uh, sit back and enjoy. Thanks so much for being here. So we, um, I'm Jackie and I'm Chris and uh, we decided to start a podcast. Um, and I think I'll start by why I'm here and I would love to know your opinion and why you're here. But, um, for me, I, I feel like, um, you have been given a gift and there I, for, therefore I have been given a gift of, um, having knowledge of something that I, I think most people don't have and, or are too scared to talk about. Um, and so for me, it's, um, this crazy world that is weirdly beautiful, but also scary, um, called addiction. And, um, uh, for me, I'm, I'm desperate now that I know what I know and that we've been through what we have, mainly you've been through what you have to teach all of us, um, to scream it from the rooftops and, and help people in need really inform and inspire is why I'm here. <laughs> nice. What about you? I am here because my amazing sister has a, a <laughs> creative outlook towards these things. And I would not be starting a podcast if it wasn't for her because 
that's not how my mind works, but I <laughs> believe I'm here because <clears throat> been through a lot of struggles in life with addiction, uh, heroin addiction, cocaine addiction, alcoholism, all the above. And, uh, got sober when I was 21 years old, just before I was 21. And since then, uh, you know, like nine years later, my life is, is, has taken a course of which I'm, I'm able to really help other people get sober. And also life in general, aside from sobriety has unfolded in a way that you just can't really make up yeah. and, and never, ever would have thought that it would have been this amazing. Absolutely. So. And I think the, the podcast thing for me is I know that I've learned from you a huge part of all of this is that it is critical to help people. So mm -hmm. for you, this is also part of, part of continuing uh, on your journey is to just keep spreading the word. Mm -hmm. And for me, like I, I think, you know, for people that are going to be listening in, um, I fully represent the completely ignorant, like goody two shoes. Goody two shoes. Hasn't perfect. done a damn thing yeah. ever. Yeah. <laughs> not perfect, but certainly, uh, not without fun. I mean, I, Hey, I love alcohol. Right. Yeah. But I never, never done a drug, uh, just totally ignorant to the world of addiction and alcoholism, except for what I've learned. So I think for, for me, I'm coming from a place of always having questions. And I think this stemmed from us being on the phone, whether it was you in Dublin or Austin, Texas, and we can talk about your life, you know, in future episodes, but um, wherever we've been, um, our chats on the phone to me, I've, I've walked away from most of them and gone, I think we're not recording this because yeah. I have so many questions I feel like, and I hope it don't bug you most of the time. It never bugs me. It's fascinating to me to learn about this thing. So I just think um, like I picture, <laughs> I just think about the time that I dropped the bomb on the family that I was a heroin addict out of nowhere. <laughs> Cause no one knew. I just like wonder what that was like for you. Cause you literally had no idea about anything. Let's, we nothing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think it's given me, I'm not going to lie. Like I, and, and we can talk about this more too. I, it's, it's opened my eyes quite a bit. I will not say that I was open to, um, understanding or even wanting to understand addiction before this. And now I do. So, and that's a, uh, <laughs> a really cool thing. And, and another reason why I think a podcast is great is because anybody who, who, is alive and knows more than two people has been affected by the yes. disease of addiction in one form or another. And some people know a lot about it and some people know nothing about it. Right. Um, it's important for people to, to be able to get a better understanding and also have someone to reach out to. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So I think, um, Let's start. I mean, I think you're here, obviously, as the, can we call it expert in addiction? Is that weird? Uh, not <laughs> the an recovered, expert. Yeah. The recovered, yeah. um, if that's the right word that we use now, the recovered um, addict, mm -hmm. um, alcoholic. Uh, and so you are here to help kind of shine light on what this is and, and answer questions and just kind of be um, our resource. And I'm here to ask the questions that I think friends, family, those who, who likely don't understand it or, or might feel like they understand it, but still have questions um, that they would have. So yeah. um, I would love, you know, just for, for those listening to just start with your, your story um, in a nutshell. I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating. I think, um, you know, at one, at one point we've, um, kind of took an hour and a half to dig into some really deep stuff, which we can definitely talk about in, a little bit later. But um, your story is is incredible. I think um, it is also very standard for what 
um, addicts and alcoholics go through. So um, tell your story. You you started when? What? Where did it all begin? <laughs> when I was like 11 or 12, I remember vividly uh, on, what was that? Hannah Lane. Yep. On Hannah Lane. How old are you when you're in like seventh grade? Or is that like 13? Yeah. Actually? 13, okay. Maybe 14. I was 13 or 14. I remember after school one day, uh, I was at uh, Robert's house. Uh, maybe Robert, I don't even remember his last yeah. name, but uh, we decided to play quarters and I had never drank before. And I think we, I think we ripped like nine or 10 shots a piece the first time I ever drank in, wow. in, um, it wasn't to be cool. It wasn't to like look cool in front of the two people that I was with. It was genuinely like when I took that first shot of, uh, sky vodka, Ooh. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was in the bottom cabinet underneath the, uh, underneath the utensils. I remember exactly where it was and we were literally on the ground bouncing quarters in the shot glasses. And, and I, I vividly remember after taking a couple of shots, um, I had felt like, like I had arrived, you know, or like I had found something, not really that I had been missing my whole life, but like found something that I really liked, you know, and part of addiction and, and recovery is this phenomenon of, of craving and this allergy that kicks off for real drug addicts and alcoholics is like, they lose control of the amount that they can take. And it's not their choice. It's, it's just something that overcomes them. And, and, uh, that's why I think I, I, I couldn't stop. And, but what, what were you thinking at the time though? I mean, you, you had this, I think we all have the same kind of case when we first drink, it's like, Whoa, this is a great feeling. Mm -hmm. I mean, I assume it was just your, your standard. I mean, nine shots is, is quite, it was lot, aggressive. But... <laughs> like that's aggressive. That is, and, that is aggressive. And, and it's also not an exaggeration. And some people are like, Oh, you would have died. I, I think I got alcohol poisoning because so I don't know what the thought was. It, it wasn't even a thought. It was just like, this is how I want to feel. Right. Like this is a good feeling and this is how I want to feel. And it was at like five o'clock in the afternoon yeah. on a Wednesday or something. Um, all I remember is like, we ended up walking uh, uh, to some like cow pasture or horse pasture or something. I just remember like being in a bush and like puking up like orange. And like, this is it was the very first time. The very first time that I ever drank, you know, and, and, all I can picture is just the time that I, I was literally sitting in a bush and I don't remember any, I just remember horses and I don't really remember too much else. And I was, I was throwing up for a while and, um, somehow I made it back to mom and dad's or to our house. Right. Um, cause I was in eighth grade mm -hmm. and I remember like calling a girl that I was quote unquote dating for like a week that <laughs> night and like, like said some like drunken thing to her and, broke up with her or something <laughs> stupid. And, uh, and I remember playing it off and mom and dad didn't, didn't find out that I was, I was absolutely blackout drunk. And I think that was kind of like, th this is the story that you'll find with me is I really enjoyed being quote unquote faded, you know, yeah. not to, to, to call it the name title. of the podcast, <laughs> but I loved being faded my entire life and, and, and no one having any idea about yeah. it. It and was I, like yeah. a double life. That, that's what it's about is, and that's what we're trying to get to is just the moments that you feel like you've faded out, faded mm -hmm. in. It's going to be all about that. But that's, it's interesting that that was the segue into a lot more. A lot more. <laughs> and you would think that someone would do that and they would get yeah. sick and feel awful and then be like, wow, that was terrible. I'm never doing that again. Yeah. And I think I, I genuinely believe that that kind of kickstarted it. And, and from there, like 
you know, to fast forward through, uh, not to get into details about every single day or every year. I remember after that, we moved into our new house or whatever. And in ninth grade, I remember ninth and 10th grade, um, we would be watching, I would be watching a movie with mom and dad because you were off to college and Megan was off to college and stuff. And we watched a movie with mom and dad. And I just remember Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, every night, I would literally run to dad's bottle, you know, and, and go to the bar that was in the other room. And I would rip back like seven or eight shots, like it was nothing on a, on a weeknight. Yeah. And I, I just remember ripping back a bunch of shots out straight out of the bottle, like chugging it as much as I could to get drunk and then, and then go use some mouthwash and brush my teeth like three times and then go back and sit right next to mom and dad and watch a movie. And literally it was like nothing ever happened. And that was a very consistent thing. Dad was drinking watered down vodka for years. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's, that's part of the story, right? Like our, our family drinks were, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of, you know, our history and it's part of, <laughs> part of what we do. Yeah. And, and I think for a while and we'll get there, we, it was, it was tough to kind of be our normal selves, you know, when you were going through this, but mm -hmm. that is part of, you know, I, I don't really remember that so much growing up when I was younger. I don't remember yeah. it's our, our parents certainly are not like it's part of our casual kind of mm -hmm. way of entertaining and they love to entertain that, that that is part of life, you know, for us. So that, that was not out of, out of the, you know, ordinary for, for you to be around and, and, but to have the access to that, you know, oh, it's yeah. right there. And you're like, yeah, this, this is I love this, I got, you know, right? like I love this There's feeling. that thing that there, gives me that feeling. Exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah, I would, I would black out many nights during the weeknights and mom and dad literally had no idea ever because it was that game that I was playing that I was like, I'm going to be as, as drunk as I possibly can so I can feel that internally. Right. And <clears throat> I didn't want anyone to find out about it because if they found out about it, then the, the gig was over, you right. know? And I just would remember like falling asleep on top of the bed with clothes on. And then I would wake up at, you know, seven thirty in the morning and go to school. Like nothing ever happened. And how, how often was that daily? Was that, uh, it was probably three days a week, four days, days a week. week. It was yeah. a lot. I mean, it was a lot. And, and at that point, I mean, you're 11, you're so young, you're, and then you're 13. I think I grade. started at 13. Okay. Yeah. So a little, so with a young age, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, at what point did you, did you ever feel like you had an, an addiction or yeah. like, like right away? I, that, that's something that I've never really understood. Like, how do you, how do you know? Not right away at all. Um, I, I genuinely was just too young, I guess, to understand that like you're not supposed to be drinking that much. But when I, the first time I can remember, cause I would smoke weed every day in high school. Yeah. I would um, smoke weed before school and in the middle school, uh, yada, yada, yada. I think the time that I really truly realized that I was an addict and an alcoholic was, um, I remember who I was with and where I was with. So just to, to give a backstory of, of the pill addiction and the opiate addiction, um, I had done a bunch of drugs, but then senior year in high school, I got my wisdom teeth taken out and I got a bottle of 30 per 30, uh, five milligram Percocets. And I remember going through that bottle within three days, I think, or four days. And the first time I took a Percocet, it was like, oh, this is it. Yeah. Like this is alcohol is cool. Weed is cool. Ecstasy and all that stuff is cool. But like, this is how can anyone live their whole lives and not do this? Right. 
was the vivid memory that I have of this. And I remember going through the bottle so quick that, and mom had no idea what it was. Like she was just like, here's a medicine that was prescribed to you. Right. Um, by a doctor. Exactly. By a doctor, <laughs> which is a very common thing now, unfortunately. And, and I would, <clears throat> I, I remember getting a new bottle like three or four days later because I had ran out and I was in so much pain because the more opiates I took, the more pain I would be in because my pain tolerance would, would be worse. And I remember punching a hole through the wall when I woke up at night because my withdrawals were so bad um, after I had taken two bottles in like seven days. And then I kind of stopped and, and went through the withdrawals. And then when I was a senior in high school, that was when it all started because when I would be in school and I would hear like, oh, I got, I would hear a student say like, oh, I got my wisdom teeth taken out or, oh, I got surgery. The first thing I would think of was like, oh, you have some of those things. Yeah, you have those things. Yeah, you have some of those things, you know? <laughs> and uh, I found ways to, to get them from people at school. Like it was perfectly normal. And just to give a little example of what opiates do to me, uh, when I was, uh, when I do cocaine, for some reason, the way my mind works, I don't really want to talk to people and I don't really want to be around people. But when I do opiates, I get energy and I can conquer the world. Yeah. A lot, a lot of people's brain chemistry is different, but, uh, my first three years of high school, I got, I got a 2.0 every year, like C student, 2.0, just getting by. And then when I started taking opiates, it made me perform on the highest possible level that I could ever perform on as a person. And, you know, when I got out of high school and moved to, to uh, Wilmington to go to school, I lasted like two weeks showing up to class. And then I remember calling Matt and I was like, Matt, I, I think I take too many pills. Yeah. And I don't know why I called him, but I just remember saying, like, I think I take too many pills and I don't want to. And he was like, man, you just got to stop, you know, and try to motivate me to do it. So that was kind of like the first time that I realized I had I, I had a little bit of a problem. Yeah. Um, but what when I really noticed I had a problem when I was home visiting one time and I was snorting uh, off of a school book, I was snorting um, two 30 milligram Roxa sets. Which and, is what? Which is <laughs> for, for which the is bees out there. <laughs> the equivalent to taking like six or seven five milligram Percocets. Okay. So I was I was snorting Roxacets. They they are little pills. That's what everyone was getting in Florida when the big mom and pop pharmacy, big pharma stuff was going on. And I uh, I remember looking at the two people that I was with, and I won't mention names, but I looked up at both of them and I said. Uh, Guys, like we're drug addicts. Yeah. Wow. I was like, we are, we are drug addicts. And I remember one of them was like, just ch dude, chill. Like, <laughs> like, like relax. Yeah, relax. And then one of them looked at me and he was like, yeah, and I'm going to die this way. I'm never going to change that. And, and I remember thinking to my head, like, this isn't how I was raised. This isn't who I want to be. And like, how the hell did I put myself in this position, you know? Yeah. And, um, I think that was kind of the first time that I was like, man, I don't really want to do this anymore, but a lot more happened after that. So. Right. And we can definitely talk about the loss of control and, and mm -hmm. the mental side of this. So I think you, you brought up a good point, how you were raised. I would love to talk about that for a second, because mm -hmm. I think for those who know the Barry family from 
any point really in life. Like we're, I joked that when we were younger, it's Partridge family. Mm -hmm. Everything's great. We're perfect. Everything's, you know, two amazing parents. Our family's dope. Timmy and Lizzie, (laughs) greatest, literally greatest people. Mm -hmm. Megan is like just the spirit of life and, and couldn't be more intelligent and amazing and hilarious. And I think the three of us could not be closer. So mm-hmm. you have this environment where you're not down and out. You're, you have everything you need. I mean, we were very comfortable growing up. I, I feel like mom and dad gave us an amazing life. Right. So couldn't have been better. It's, it's, I mean, it's funny. I think a lot of people equate, you know, addiction and, and alcoholism. And I, I certainly probably would have felt this way before, you know, not mm-hmm. knowing this, but I think a lot of people equate it to, um, needing more and just finding yourself in these down spots. And, and that's what you turn to, or but it's trauma. not the case. Like, yeah. yeah. And I think there's different cases for everyone, but you can be fully set up in life and, and, get into this addiction world, um, uh, mm-hmm. because it's, it's within you. Right. So I it think is. what, you know, what do you, I guess my question would be, how did you start into, I mean, we know you, how you started into drinking, but then why weed and then why, why continue to, to yeah. kind of see, I mean, you're, you're curious, but, mm-hmm. but it's not like you needed anything to fulfill you. You, right. you just like, tell me about that. I'm, I'm curious. Well, there was no, uh, and something that I always talk about when I go like, do you like speaker meetings or whatever is um there are a lot of people that i believe and that i've ran into i've you know i've had the opportunity to sit down with hundreds and hundreds of people and hear their stories and uh something that does pop up a lot is like trauma you know like molestation Mm -hmm. and and uh being sexually and physically abused by their parents or uncles or brothers and sisters or pretty much everything you can think of and i i didn't have a single situation like that um growing up my like my life just like you said was was very clear and and straightforward and and there was nothing that I was I was trying to run from you know um part of uh part of I'm in a 12-step program and part of that is is there's a, a portion of it that is described as a spiritual malady and it's like this this part within you that you you're kind of like you have this like spiritual hole inside and and I don't remember being necessarily depressed as a kid but I do remember feeling like you know um a little irritable restless and discontent and like even though sports fulfilled me and family fulfilled me there was still something that kind of wasn't necessarily there and I didn't know what it was you know And, and learning now uh going through what I've been through and now being being sober for a while is is that you know, the key to all of this is, is being spiritually fulfilled and, and whole. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a religion or this or that, but yeah. um, when you're spiritually whole and, and you're fulfilled internally, the world around you is kind of irrelevant because anything can be going on in your life externally and you can be okay internally. Right. So. Absolutely. And so we, we had church growing up. I mean, we mm-hmm. had, we had our kind of our version of spirituality. Was that something that just didn't fulfill you? I mean, I, and I, I know this is a sensitive topic, but, but you said you felt like you were missing something. Was mm-hmm. that early on that you felt that? And, and were you not getting that out of that? Or did you just not need to recognize it until you went through it? I just didn't need to recognize it. Yeah. And that's kind of the coolest thing about actually getting sober is like, it forced me to get into a position where I was willing to be open to new principles in life, you know, and, and 
living a certain way of life where your whole perspective changes towards the world. And, um, but no, there was, there was, there wasn't really a need for me to right. <laughs> care about any of that growing up because yeah. that's just not what I was interested in. I was more interested in sports and, mm-hmm. you know, all yeah. that <laughs> skateboarding, mm-hmm. skateboarding, <laughs> hockey, golf, being with friends. Exactly. Right? Awesome. So, so for the timeline, as it goes, you, you drank very early you got into weed how how did that start um i mean i think that's oof. a very typical and i you know when i remember uh not to, not to cut in on you but i remember the first time maybe that you got caught and we were all together um, on a hockey tournament away oh, in the hotel i mean i i think for me especially and, and being me uh i remember thinking yeah you know he's He's a kid. He's he's gonna try weed. It's not that's not out of the ordinary. So I don't, I don't think anybody really worried at all at that point because mm-hmm. it's just like ah, he's he's dumb. He didn't put something in the door. But other than that, yeah. And if I were a parent today and I caught my kid smoking weed in ninth or tenth grade, I yeah. wouldn't be like, oh my god, my kid's gonna be a drug addict. Right. It's you know? over. It's, right. It's yeah. over. <laughs> it's like I would I would be like, oh okay, well let's talk about this, but. Um, yeah, the first two times I smoked weed, I got caught. And that was the, I think maybe that's why I was so sneaky about everything was yeah. because we were at a hockey tournament. Uh, the first time I got high was, was I remember in a bathroom in like, where were we, like Virginia or like remember. somewhere. Yeah. And then I couldn't play the next like two games with the two people I got caught with because <laughs> we got caught. You know, all the parents were like, we're leaving for dinner. And I was like, oh, I'm going to hang back with them too. And then mom, <laughs> I remember hearing mom walking down the hall going is that marijuana I right right yeah. when we walked in the hotel. literally right, right when we walked, walked in, in. <laughs> so i just remember uh going to bed uh pretty high but don't really like remember it because we got caught and it kind of was a buzz kill and then the second time i got caught was at Gre- uh <laughs> greg's house like back when we were in ninth grade or something and i just remember we were at his dad's house and we went to the bathroom and smoked a lot of weed in the bathroom. And his dad came up and was like, what are you doing? You know? And like, he called mom and dad and was like, yeah. you, <laughs> you need to come pick up your son. They're smoking weed. And I just remember the whole ride home. I was just like, oh, I'm screwed, you know? Yeah. And, and mom and dad were really cool about it. They had a talk with me about it. And uh, they weren't like, you're a terrible person. And, and um, I think from there, uh, uh, I probably stayed away from it for a couple months or whatever, but ultimately, you know, I got back into it. And, and then it and was a, a standard thing, right? In that your, was my thing. Every in, day. In your week. Every yes, day. Every day. Every day. No matter what, it was, it was every single day. And I where, um, so this is, again, I think as much educational as it is for you to share your story, but where, where did you get it? Was it easily accessible? Oh, like, yeah. is it just, it's, it's easy, right? Yeah, it's okay. easy. It's easy. I think, um, and then you, you go, you're going through high school, you're smoking weed. What, what's the next step? What was the next thing? That was it. The pills after that. Well, well, I think before pills, I got really into mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And, uh, when I was a junior in high school, I think was the first time that I did mushrooms. And I probably, I probably did mushrooms like five or six times my junior year and 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 that's um, just a product of being around it is that you yeah around it and you you just try it because you're curious yeah i was very curious and the first time i did it it i mean um as terrible as some people may think it sounds like eating mushrooms was one of the most profound experiences i've ever had in my life i know you've said that before yeah why explain it uh you know it i don't want to um 
make it sound like I'm glorifying it in any way, but at the same time, like it truly opens your mind to uh, a new perspective that is, is sometimes difficult for some people to, to see. And it, uh, it kind of makes you look at life in a, in a different way. And, and um, I remember looking at trees and there was this like little glow around the trees. Like you don't, you don't see clowns running after you and it's not this crazy, <laughs> crazy thing that everyone thinks it really is. Like, like when you eat them and you go outside, it's like nature becomes beautiful to you. Yeah. And I think it helps you get into the moment a lot more than, than, uh, you can be if you're kind of blocked off from, from the world. And, um, you know, like for instance, I would literally go stand next to a tree and just look at a tree for a couple hours yeah. and be perfectly content, you know, and it's because you, you kind of realize the beauty of the world around you, uh, in a different way, in a different way, in a different way, yeah. in a much deeper way. And I, it's not glorifying it to me. It's, it's explaining it. Cause yeah. I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of the misconception out there is, you know, drugs are making you feel good. Why don't people just stop? And mm -hmm. we can get into that as well, but you know, it's, it's, it is doing something to you and that is building up to something. And of it's course. also something that's inherent in you as well mm -hmm. um, from what I understand. So uh, it, it's helpful to understand those types of things yeah. because I certainly have not experienced that. Um, I don't have the desire to, that's just me, mm -hmm. but um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear. So yeah. um, some mushrooms mm -hmm. and then mushrooms, acid. Uh, okay. Um, so you've tried everything. Pretty much. Everything. I've done everything you can think of. <laughs> okay. Um, and and then I, I really believe the alcohol and the weed were the two very consistent things. Mm -hmm. uh, and then senior year after that surgery was, was what really, what really kicked did. it off. Yeah. Cause I got my wisdom teeth taken out. And then I also got into a car accident when I was right. blackout drunk on the way home from work right. my senior year. And, uh, <laughs> um, somehow got out of that unscathed and yeah. other than with a separated shoulder and because of the shoulder separation, uh, I got prescribed Vicodin and okay. then I was like, Oh, I love these. Right. You know, I these remember are great. this. <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. These are those things. Yeah. Okay. Well, and then, then you're just kind of on this journey of pills, pills, all pills. All pills. Um, and, and naturally in that world, when you're seeking out Percocets and you're seeking out, uh, all that, you start running into more people that do it. And, mm -hmm. and, um, I kind of prided myself on like the fact that I had my hockey friends and golf friends and like normal life friends. And then I would always have a couple of friends that I would use with, and I always wanted to keep them separate. And eventually you run into people that have Oxycontin mm -hmm. and Dilaudid and Roxaset and Fentanyl and all these different pills that do the same thing to you, but are naturally stronger. Yeah. And, uh, you build a tolerance and, you know, once you do Oxycontin or, or Dilaudid or whatever, you get a Percocet, a five milligram Percocet, like I started taking and you're like, what is this? This literally will do nothing to me, right. you know? And, That's scary. and yeah, yeah. <laughs> you build a serious tolerance and, and you don't even look at it as like, Oh, I'm not doing the right thing or I'm doing the wrong thing. You just, you're like, yeah, I want that. It makes right. me feel great. Right. And, uh, eventually, you know, in Wilmington, when I was living in Wilmington, that was the first time I tried heroin. And for anyone that doesn't really know, uh, they might hear the word heroin and go, Oh my God, you know, yeah. like that's such a big deal. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because sometimes I'd rather do Oxycontin than heroin. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's basically like 
synthetic heroin. And, and it was just the first time that I got introduced to shooting it up. And it was a guy named Rob Betts who is dead now. Um, he was a very close friend of mine and I, I still love him to death. And, and I got really sad when I found out he passed away. And, um, you know, I, I remember telling him like, yeah, let's get some Oxycontin or this or that. And he was like, oh. he's like, man, I can get some heroin, but like, that's going to be a thing. He was like, I haven't done it in a while. And like, when we do it, like, it's not going to just be for like the night. It's yeah. going to be a thing. And I was like, well, I'm already <laughs> like, I'm already seeking out pills every day of the week. Yeah. So let's do it. So we went to, uh, I don't remember the street, but it was, I think it was like rainbow road, rainbow <laughs> Mario Kart. <laughs> level or whatever uh i think it was rainbow street or, or something and i just remember pulling up he had the dude to go to and and guy came out to the car window and and gave us two bags of heroin for i think it was like 30 or 40 bucks and we went back to his place and i remember uh yeah he shot me up and and the first time you shoot up is or every time you shoot up is is it's really interesting how much more powerful it is um, you get the same feeling when you're done rushing but the initial rush that comes over your body is it feels like somebody is putting it feels like god is wrapping his arms around you as a person and literally from your brain down to your toes this wave of peace and this wave of euphoria kind of goes slowly down your body and you just go like you almost can't even talk because it feels so good. Um, so when people go to the needle and start shooting up, mm -hmm. it's, it's very rare that they stop doing that and continue to just snort it because that's kind of what uh, people seek out when they're using needles. It's, it's not like, Oh, I feel better than when I snort it. It's, that initial 15 seconds of, of the rush is something that it's unexplainable what it feels like. And it sounds like I'm glorifying this as well, but you have, you kind of have to explain it for people to understand that. Um, it's, uh, it's wild and you can shoot up Oxycontin and Roxaset and all that yeah. stuff too. So, you know, it's literally all the same thing. Yeah. Uh, heroin is just less expensive and, way easier to find than Oxycontin and Roxaset and all of that. So that's why people naturally go from pills to heroin because it's just easier to find. Right. Um, it, it, it's not that it's better or worse. It's just easier. It's more accessible. Yeah. This is, uh, it's, it's scary to talk about. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's crazy to me that it is this easy and that you got this much out of it. And I think, like the the end all point that we're trying to get to is you have an addiction like you have an addiction mm -hmm. inside of you and that's a huge part of it what you were feeling in the moment was this is the best thing i've ever experienced exactly you didn't know at the time that you couldn't control that no when did you figure out that you couldn't control that. And I, we sort of touched on it before, but it's not just that it's not just that you, you were choosing to do this every day. I mean, you were choosing that, but you learned later that you really weren't. I wasn't. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> so what I think people the, get And confused. that's where we need to yep. really like part of this education is in forever and listening. This, it, it, it is for 
most people not a choice when you get down this path it's path, not all the way to doing all these things yeah you lose <laughs> so. the, you lose the power of choice in in, in drinking and, and using drugs and that's a very very uh confusing subject yeah. for some people and we can we'll get into more detail about about that but um i think i realized that my life was completely unmanageable and, and that I had lost the power of choice in doing it. Um, because like in the, like there are times where it's good and you're like, wow, this is life is good. Yeah. You know, like I'm functioning, I'm, functioning, I'm doing great. And that's kind of, that's kind of why people, there's a reason why people get addicted to it and can't stop, mm -hmm. you know, like, like people don't do it and say, Oh, I hate this at the beginning and then keep doing it. It's like, even if you have bad experiences, there's something within you that it feels good, you know? And, uh, when I finally realized that I was like, wow, I am never going to be able to stop. This is, I was living in, uh, some, I was living in some apartment complex with, uh, a couple friends and, and I had moved back to Raleigh mm -hmm. at that point after a lot of crazy stuff in Wilmington. And mom was like paying for, for my rent or helped me with my rent and giving me money. And, and she had no idea that I was addicted, zero clue that I was addicted to drugs. Nobody did. Nope. And I remember coming home one day to go be at the house and I had zero money. Mom had just given me money in my bank account for rent because I was like, Hey, I need money. I'm struggling. And, um, I didn't pay rent and I used it to buy dope and, uh, she looked at me, I was, I was, I remember sitting upstairs at the, at the desk at the, uh, house on King post. <clears throat> and I was, I was sitting there and she was doing bills and she was like, Chris, what happened with the money? I saw that the account was overdrafted and you were supposed to pay rent with that money. And I was detoxing and withdrawing already from, from heroin and from opiates. Cause I didn't get them all day long. And I just started sweating like profusely. And she looked at me and she was like, what's wrong? And I looked at her and I said, I'm addicted to Oxycontin. Just came right out. It came right out. And, uh, she looked at me and she said, she was like, I'm in shock, but please understand that we're going to be able to like figure this out. I just don't really know what to do right this moment. She's amazing. And that's kind of like, if you could paint a perfect picture of what a, a, a relative or family member or whatever, if you can paint a, a picture of what to do with somebody who is, is asking for help or is telling you that they have a problem is, is the worst thing you could ever do is tell them, how could you do this to our family? Or if you loved me, you would stop doing this. Right. Um, because it is absolutely true that you, I didn't wake up in the morning when I was 15 or 14 years old and say, I want to be a drug addict right. or I want to be a heroin addict when I'm 18 years old, you know? And, and, uh, so at that point she helped me, um, find a, a rehab facility and found a rehab facility in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I went to treatment. How did you, for the first time. how are you, how are you feeling? I mean, it, you, first of all, what made you just come out and say it? Was that, I mean, I'll let you answer that before I answer um, for you. <laughs> it's weird. Like the, the, the two times I went to rehab three times and, and the, the first time and the last time 
both times I just, I, I don't know what came over me, but I just like, I couldn't do it anymore. I was tired of withdrawing. I was tired of like hustling for money. I was tired of feeling like crap. And, and I knew that life could be so much better. And I, and I think there was a lot leading up to the moment that I actually said, I'm addicted to drugs. Um, had you planned on saying that? No, no. It just came out. Zero plan. What? what I was trying to get money from her yeah. that day. Yeah. Which would have been typical, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What allowed you to say it, do you think? Um, <laughs> probably, probably the fact that, that I had a, a safe place to say it with her. Um, I think if she had created an environment where, where I was judged or where I was going to be kind of, I don't know, belittled as a person or something, I would have just tried to hide it and, and kind of go into my little shell and go away. But I, I just knew that I could for some reason. I feel like it, to me, it seems like it stems back to the way we were raised. Mm-hmm. And I feel that, I mean, we're all in our own ways close, so close to mom and dad Mm -hmm. and to each other. But I, for everything I've gone through in my life, I've never once thought I can't go to them because they created that, to your point, safe zone Mm -hmm. that we had the open door to be able to say something if we needed to. And that might've just been, sounds like it's your moment that you, you knew that your, that secret at at this point Mm -hmm. (laughs) was safe with her and that she would, she would do the right thing to support. They've always said to us, no questions asked if you're in trouble. Yeah. And I know that a lot of parents likely say that, do they mean that? Hopefully. Right. And, and in this case, mom proved that Mm -hmm. (laughs) hugely and then went about this on her own for a little bit of time, at least a day. Mm -hmm. But, um, I think that's so important. (laughs) It's all. And also like for people, like there's a lot of people out there that don't have parents or people that were raised in, in very strict households. And they're like, how am I supposed to get honest about this with, with my parents or with my grandma that I was raised by or whoever it is that you have. And um, I think for any family member or friend who in general has to be there for somebody that's going through this, I think it's really important um, to, to create an environment to where someone feels comfortable and not judged. And there's a difference between doing that and enabling somebody, which I'm sure we'll talk about eventually, but I make sure that like, like a buddy of mine right now that I'm talking to every day, can't stop doing heroin. Uh, he's been doing heroin for a long time. He's been sober for a certain amount of time and everyone has kind of, um, pushed him out because they're tired of, of dealing with it and him not getting sober. And, and I don't stop talking to him because eventually he's going to, he's going to need help, you know, if he doesn't die first. And, um, I want him to know that he can call me when he's high or when he's not high and I'm not going to give him money or I'm not going to hold his hand while he's getting high, but the day he needs help, I'm going to be there, you know? And, And it's important for everyone to know that like, you don't have to keep them physically around, but you know, if someone's getting high, it's not because they're a bad person. It's because they have a disease. Right. And that, yeah. And there it is. Right. And I think for, 
for the folks out there that if like for me, if I knew you were addicted and you hadn't told me, or if I know you're struggling and, and you're not stopping, what is the best thing that that's the best thing for me to that's do? Right? I mean, you're a great resource for your friend because you know exactly the things to say and mm-hmm. do, but not everybody knows that. I mean, I think the, the human approach to it is let me help you. Let me do what I can do. Let me open my door, whatever it might be, um, which, which is not the answer. And it's such a, this, that was the hardest thing for me to learn about this, I think. But as a first step, when you know somebody's struggling, it's just I love reminding you. them of the love, right? Yeah, I but, love you. But not necessarily helping that. Like that, it's so hard to, to understand. The it's inner just, turmoil that's going on with people who, who are addicted to drugs and who are alcoholics the the like conversations they have with themselves is already low enough. They don't need somebody else telling them right. that they're they're scum of the earth or that they're not a good person or that they've disappointed you because they already know. Right. And your inkling as a family and friend is, but you're lying, cheating, stealing, yeah. doing all of this. Clearly, awful a stuff. bad you're person. You're a mess. Mm-hmm. You're a mess. Mm-hmm. You're a bad person. So you want to say mean things yeah. <laughs> because you don't feel like you feel like they're choosing this and you feel like they fully understand that they are ruining so many things. And while they might know it, they're not choosing to do like, and it, the it, truth is underneath all of that, uh, dark negative, um, quote unquote, bad stuff is a really, really beautiful, amazing person. Right. And if people stick around and, and allow that person an opportunity to get better, it's pretty amazing how quickly you find that amazing person that you either once knew or you never knew was there. And, and um, addicts and alcoholics are, are some of the most interesting, amazing people you could ever meet. Yeah. Whether they're high and drunk or not, but typically when they get sober and when they, when they clear up and clean up and their perspective changes, and they find out who they are. I mean, they're some of the most hardworking, ambitious, charismatic people in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. They just have, they have disease mm-hmm. and they, they are trying to get through that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Similar to a lot of diseases we face. I, um, so you're, you're in rehab and you know, you, you went three times. Yeah. Three. <laughs> yep. Third time's a charm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that sounds like it's fairly typical that, I mean, not, not, I mean, doesn't sound like a lot of people go one time and done, right? Well, they can. Yeah, (laughs) they can. The fact, the here's the deal. The fact that the culture has become that you need to go multiple times is really sad. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, I won't go too, too far into detail and and get on a soapbox about it. But, uh, in the recovery program that I, I am involved with or whatever, um, in the thirties and forties and fifties, like when it all started, it was, it was much different than it is now because people have like changed it and, and rehabs are great. But unfortunately there's a lot of rehabs out there that teach you that you're going to struggle your whole life to stay sober. And that every day is going to be kind of like, you know, grasping on and white knuckling to, uh, to make it through the day. And I can, I can say it with, all the honesty in my heart that the first two times I went to treatment, I was a hundred percent done and a hundred percent ready to get sober. Uh, 
but I was held back. Um, and some people listening may think like, Oh, what a cop out or what an excuse. Yeah. And like, I don't have to give a cop out or right. an excuse. It doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't serve me or anyone in any way. But I just remember, um, hearing things from, from counselors and from people while I was in there. Like I remember asking one of my counselors in a meeting, I said, uh, I said in a small group, you know, Mr. Whatever, like, I can't imagine I'm, I'm 18 years old, you know, I can't imagine never getting drunk or, or smoking weed again. You know, I'm 18. And I said, this seems really scary and difficult for me just trying to be honest. And he looked at me in the eyes in front of a group of people. And he said, for the first two years that I was sober, I had to tell myself that I was going to get high tomorrow. And Mm -hmm. For a real drug addict like myself and for a real alcoholic like myself, like hearing that is the most defeating thing you could possibly hear in your entire life because I don't have the power of choice whether I'm going to pick up that first drug or not because there's something in my mind that blocks me from being able to differentiate the truth from the false and consequences and pain and withdrawals and and all that stuff from the past it doesn't deter you from picking up the first drink or, or the first drug. And that's the most baffling part about the disease is you, you, <clears throat> your mind is where the problem is centered. So how could you fix your mind and your drug problem with your broken mind? Hmm. So me telling myself I'm going to get high tomorrow is irrelevant because my mind is the thing that is, is flawed. And that's where the spiritual component comes in. Unbelievable. That is what people don't understand. That is the most difficult part to understand in the whole situation. So, so just to kind of like recap the first two times I went to treatment, that was one thing a counselor told me. Another thing a counselor told me was, uh, I said, Hey, I feel really good at night for some reason, but during the day I feel like crap and I feel anxious and I feel just confused and just, uh, just yucky, you know? And, uh, but then when the sun would go down, it would be nighttime. I don't know why, but I would just feel like alive and, and like myself. And she looked at me and she said, uh, she said, that's how I felt for the first 18 months that I was sober. You just got to get through the first 18 months and that'll go away. And I just remember walking away going like, this sucks. Yeah. Like, I can't feel that way for 18 months. It's <laughs> right. not worth it to me, right. you know? And I left rehab the uh, after being there for 30 days. And I remember standing in front of the whole rehab facility. And I did this going away five-minute spiel that everybody did. And I was like, basically like, I am going to stay sober. This is great. Life is amazing. Let's all do this. And then I remember, I think it was the day after I left, I was on the way to Florida to play a hockey tournament. And I was smoking weed. Did you, when you made your speech, did you feel like you were going to stay clean? I knew I was going to stay clean. You knew it. I knew it. Wow. I knew for a fact that I was going (laughs) to stay clean. And that is why this deal is so, um, so baffling is because you can truly believe in, in everything within you that you're going to stay sober and make this firm resolution. And, and, um, you genuinely, no matter how far out, uh, even though I'm nine years sober or whatever, uh, I still don't have 
the choice of whether I'm going to pick up heroin or alcohol again. Yeah. Uh, as long as I'm, I'm in fit spiritual condition and follow some principles and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sane around it. And I do uh, have a, a choice, but that's kind of all where it all gets confusing. Yeah. So you were getting high 24 hours later, 24 hours later. Mm-hmm. And then that night we played a couple of hockey games in Florida. And I remember drinking like two or three beers and yeah, it was like, whatever. I was talking about rehab and things are great. And, you know, yeah, <laughs> I went to sick. rehab. It's it was cool. Sick. It's yeah. sick. But so did you have any regret? You, no. So you, so you smoked weed 24 hours after getting out of rehab and yeah. you have no resentment. I was fine. No, I was fine. Uh, and then, and then because your mind, your the, the greatest obsession, the great obsession of every abnormal drinker or user is that someday somehow they will be able to control and enjoy their drinking. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people follow that, you know, to the gates of insanity or death and, and literally, and, uh, you know, um, you feel like you're okay in those moments because your mind tells you you are. And that's why people don't understand the addiction is like, why can't you just stop? Or if you loved your family, why can't you just stop? And it's, it's literally impossible if you don't have the right tools to do so. So then you continued for nine months, nine months, nine months. Uh, I lasted like two months. And then I think I finally was like, all right, I'm going to get some, some Roxy's, some Roxaset. Not going to go back to heroin. I'm just going to snort them. (laughs) I remember buying like two Roxasets and I, I did them. And went on with my day and I don't think I did another one for another week or two. And I actually, I didn't control it, but for a few weeks, like I was maintaining and doing decent, you know? And then at some point, um, because I have this physical allergy and I have this, this, um, lack of control. I, I, every single day, it was every single day, right back to where you were, right back to where I was. And what was your, what was your life at this point? You're living with mom and dad again, living with mom and dad. Uh, after a couple months of doing it, I was driving to Florida every week or every other week with a couple people that I knew to go pick up like 5,000 pills at a time. Um, and, and Florida, Florida, that's where all the mom and pop pharmacies were and, and, uh, pain clinics. And and there was a huge epidemic and issue that's supposedly no longer there, but we would drive through the night. We would go pick up like four to 5,000 pills and then we would drive back. And I was just the driver, you know, cause I didn't have the money to do that. They would just hold a bill full of crushed up Roxasets in front of my face the whole drive there. And I would snort like six or seven Roxasets driving there. And then we'd get there and they'd pick them up and then drive back. And, and, um, you know, once we did that a few times, I, I was clearly physically addicted again. And, and, and at that point I had gotten back into heroin. And, uh, this is when I met a very close friend of mine still, uh, Chad, who I don't know how I met him. Oh, I met him at Ump's house. Ump is a guy who's, who's dead now. And, uh, First time I met him, I stole two pills from him and then helped him look for him. Uh, and we got linked up and, and we started driving to a lot to go pick up pills. And, and then 
we finally started driving to and that's where a lot of black tar heroin is. And it's literally a business. And Chad introduced me to this business that's ran out there and they're open from nine to five. They literally, the phone will not ring until nine o'clock. And then as soon as five o'clock hits, the phone is off and you call them and, and they answer the phone and they get you linked up with a couple guys. And uh, we were driving out there, I think like twice a week for a while to go pick up black tar and, um, I remember one, one night I, I had taken a bunch of clonopin, which is a benzodiazepine. It's the same thing as it's like lorazepam, Xanax, clonopin, Valium, all those things are the same. And, um, I had taken like five or six that night cause we were out doing something. And I remember waking up and, and we were going to go to drive to like our normal routine. And I had taken one clonopin that morning. And a lot of it was still in my system from the night before. And benzos and opiates are the most lethal combination of any drug you can think of. And uh, since I had forgotten that I had taken it, because you forget mm. a lot. When you take those, you forget everything. You just literally forget. And we drove to, to do our normal morning drive to go pick up about a gram of heroin. And me and him both got a gram. And we, we each did about a half a gram uh, uh, in a parking lot and I don't remember where it was, but all I remember is, is, uh, quote unquote, waking up on the concrete to Chad over me and, and I had water all over my body. And I just remember looking up at him and swinging at him, trying to hit him in the face. Um, because I, I don't know, I didn't know what was going on. And he was like, Whoa, Whoa, what are you doing? And, uh, he was like, I literally just saved your life. Like, dude, you were dead for five minutes. And, um, yeah, so I overdosed and died and I looked at him and I was like, dude, what, you know, what the fuck? Like, let's yeah. get out of here. So I, I jumped up. It, this was in the morning in the middle of like a Ugh. shopping center or something. Stood up, got in the car. Um, he got in the car and I was like, let's get out of here. And I looked at my face in the mirror and my lips were purple. So I was like, Oh shit, I died, you know? And that's kind of the crazy thing about being in the midst of addiction and stuff is like, those kind of things don't really like from a family member perspective or from like an outsider's perspective, you'd be like, that is nuts. And terrifying. me, it terrifying. Like terrifying. you died. Yeah. And I just remember looking at him being like, that was crazy. And I was like, let's get out of here. And we both kind of like chuckled about it and Unbelievable. left. Unbelievable. Yeah. And this is you, how long after coming out of rehab? Uh, this was probably six months after rehab. Okay. And I lasted another three months after that mm. before I had gotten into shooting up cocaine for a little while. Mm. Um, why, why shoot up cocaine? The rush from shooting up cocaine is like, the most powerful thing you could ever feel like, I don't know if this makes sense at all to anybody, but when you shoot up cocaine, you can literally hear the inside of a light bulb because it, it <laughs> like when there, if there's a light on in the room, <laughs> you're, you're like your senses and like things are so intense for like 15 seconds that you literally like can hear. It's like this ringing and, and, huh. So I got into that because of the rush. And, and I remember um, I was staying at Connor's house uh, 
uh, a hockey teammate of mine. And, and I think I only lasted like two weeks doing that. And, um, I remember I had just moved in and I think it was like three nights into living there. I, I was shooting up Coke all night long and I finally had like a little bit left in the bag and the sun came up and I was like, what am I doing? You know? And I was like, how am I like back to this point again? Like, how did I get back here? And I actually called the same rehab facility that I went to uh, as soon as they opened. And I remember talking to this guy uh, who I remembered from there. And I was like, man, I've been doing Coke all night. Like I can't stop doing drugs. And he was like, we'd love for you to come back. So you call on your own. I called on my own. And then as soon as I, I got accepted, I called mom and I was like, I'm strung out again. And I already called the rehab facility. Can you please help me get into the rehab facility? And she was like, Yes. Um, and this was three nights after I had, I had called her cause they wouldn't let me stay at the house anymore. Right. At this point, this was three nights after I had called mom and, and for family members who are struggling with, with not knowing what to do or, or whatever. I called mom and told her, I was like, I need to sleep in the house tonight. I have nowhere to stay. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you're not sleeping in the house tonight. And I was like, let me sleep on the porch at least let me sleep on the porch. And she was like, you are not allowed to come sleep on the porch. Like I'm not enabling you anymore. I can't do this to, to our family anymore. Which was critical, critical, huge. And I remember telling her, I said, I am going to kill myself if you don't let me sleep on the porch. And I was like, I will kill myself tonight. And she started crying and she was like, don't you dare put that on me. And for a mom to tell a son, no, even after they've said, I'm going to commit suicide is probably, I mean, I couldn't imagine how difficult that was for her, Yeah. you know, and props to her and kudos to her for, for standing strong, because that helped me get to a point to where I was like, all my resource, all my resources are gone. I have nowhere else to go. And, you know, but I knew she was going to be there if I actually wanted help. So no, but I, I think, you know, mom and dad coming to the agreement also, you know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> we all grew up, we're all going through more adult things now and it's, you know, marriage, family and, and, and finding people that can go through life with you. I just respect them so much. And, and I would love to ask them at some point, we'll certainly talk to them, um, in the future of just how did they get there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause you hear, um, advice on what to do and, um, kicking you out again, going back to our family being so close and literally the most ride or die family. I Mm -hmm. mean, we, we would do anything for each other to, to abandon your human nature. And I can't imagine doing it to you as a sister, but let alone a, a mom or dad to say, no, you can't come here. You can't come here. You don't live here. Um, unbelievable. It's nuts. So that, caused you to, I mean, what, what did that change in you? I mean, that, that was, was that before you were shooting up or was that? No, that was, that was after that was, was like, after. it was already, yeah. this, so this was after the first time I went to treatment and no, right. But was that, was that the, when, when mom, and, when you called mom and said, let me sleep, on let the me porch. sleep, like what then triggered you to feel differently, to know that, that that was different. I think it all kind of hit me where I was like, wow, I can't, I can't 
get anything else out of my family. Yeah. And I'm not a very resourceful drug addict. Like I can't. Just, I mean, I feel like you were. <laughs> I was, I was not very, I mean, I got sober before I was 21. I'm not yeah. great at it. Yeah. I don't last very long because I don't like stealing from people. I did and, and did what I had to do to get what I needed at the time. But, um, I just knew that my resources were gone and like, I really didn't want to, to be the person in the family that like was no longer in the family because I was like, you know, I, I want, I want a normal life. And that was the deal with me was the whole time I was doing drugs. Like I also wanted to live a normal life, which is why, you know, Marty and Luke and mm -hmm. DJ and all these people around Dave, you know, yeah. all these people around me that are normal, non, non drug addicts. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like, desperately wanted to, to continue to have friendships with them. And I did, yeah. you know, but, um, it helped me get to a point to where I had nothing, uh, no resources left, yeah. which is why it's important to not enable. Yeah. So you woke up, you saw the sun, you're, you're like, why do I do this again? You, you end up getting back into mm -hmm. treatment, going to treatment. And, and what then did you feel differently the second time? No, I felt, I felt the same. I did the first time I felt, um, that's why there's no such thing as like, one quote unquote rock bottom. Like you don't, you don't hit rock. It's like, Oh, I hit rock bottom. It's like, there's different quote unquote bottoms, but like it was worse the, the second time than it was the third time I went to treatment. Interesting. Um, and I, that's, that's really important. I think cause you know, on the, on the very basic education of addiction, I think that's what people, you hear that all the time, mm -hmm. TV, whatever, you know, we, we quote, rock bottom as yeah. being the moment. So you didn't experience the moment. It's not, you, you don't feel like there is the rock bottom moment. It no. is you reach many, a point. many rock bottoms mm -hmm. where you're kind of questioning. Is that a better way of? Yeah. Or just like you finally reach a point where you're so internally, I think it's more internal. Mm -hmm. Like you reach a point where you're so internally just broken that you can't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. And, and that's where I was. I just, I couldn't handle it internally anymore. I was just, I was, um, I was over it. And that's because you didn't have anything. I didn't, didn't have, have anything. You didn't have to go to. You didn't nope. have anything. I had nothing. And um, so I went I went into that treatment facility, the same one. And it may sound like I'm dogging it when I'm talking about the counselors or this and that, but they're amazing people. They just, they're teaching what they know. Right. You know? And I had a very similar experience um, where I listened in class, I talked in groups, I did what I did what I needed to do, and um, got out. And this time, I decided to go to a transitional living house, which was different than the first time. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll, a man that changed my life forever uh, was the manager of the transitional living house. His name was Reed. And when I walked in the door, he looked at me and he said, "This is when I, after thirty days of being there." He looked at me and he shook my hand and he said, hi, my name's Reed and I'm a recovered alcoholic. And I was like, whoa, I've never heard someone call themselves a recovered alcoholic before. Everyone says you're recovering. You're always struggling. You're always, you know. And I was like, wow, I something was very attractive about what this guy had. Mm -hmm. And um, he this guy showed me what it was like to be free and be sober. And it was the first person that I had met that I looked at and I was like, man, you look like you are very happy and you are not struggling and, and, and you know how to deal with life, you know? 
And because part of part of why people get drunk and people get high is because they don't know how to cope with life because right. life is tough at times, yep. you know, and uh, this guy showed me some really, really cool stuff and, and, and showed me that, you know, um, in getting sober, going through, you know, the, the principles of recovery quickly is extremely important. And everybody else in the community was, um, like, no, you need to do it slowly. Mm-hmm. You need to, you need to go through these steps slowly and, and, and you're not ready for that, you know? And he was like, that's not the truth. You need to go through it quickly. Hmm. And he made me listen to these speaker tapes of people who spoke about recovery and sobriety and, and, um, two guys, Chris R and, and Myers are, uh, who, um, are very aggressive in their, in their talks where they're basically saying like, stop holding people back from going through this work quickly yeah. and, and, um, help, help people get better by helping them grow spiritually quicker. And I was, I couldn't have read help me, uh, the way that I needed help because he was working for the rehab facility. So it's conflict of interest. So he wow. had to help me find somebody else to, to, um, show me how to get sober. And, uh, I remember going through, uh, I was sober for 88 days and, um, I had been going to these meetings that you're supposed to go to for 88 days. And and I was fully involved and I had moved into this, this house of sober people. And I remember on at 88 days sober, cause when you get to 90 days, it's this big deal. Yeah. You know, you're like, Oh wow, I made it three months. And, um, this one guy called me and he was like, Hey, I was living with him. He was like, Hey, I've got, I've I've got to connect to get some Percocets. Do you want to get some? And I remember going like, actually, no, like I don't want to take Percocets. I feel pretty good right now. Did he just come out of nowhere? Uh, I mean, I was hanging out with him a lot and he was sober up until that day, but he was like, Hey, I'm, I'm about to go get some of these. And I remember, um, being like, no, I'm good. You know? And I had not done any, work. I had just been going to these, these, you know, uh, meetings and, um, I remember calling him back. I don't even know what happened. I just remember dialing his number and calling him back. And I was like, Hey, actually, yeah, get me three of those. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where the lack of power and choice comes in is like, you're looking at this kid who, who, you know, hit a very dark place, decided to go to treatment the second time, swore it off completely never wanted to go back to it again. And somehow after being sober for three months or just short of three months is like, you know what? I feel really good right now, but like, why not take three of those? It's going to be okay. And I remember telling myself, I'm going to take these three pills. I can control it. And then I'm going to have 90 days sober in two days and it's okay. Hmm. Believing it with everything within me that, that it would be okay. And, um, it was because I had never gotten connected, spiritually connected and, and plugged in to the point to where that mental blank spot is cleared up and I'm, and I'm sane around it. Right. And so you, so you used, used, yep. <laughs> used, mm-hmm. uh, no longer sober. And, and, um, and then you are within the Greensboro area, within for a while, the Greensboro right? area. just kind of living with friends and yeah, I lived with Luke, yep. uh, for a while, he let me sleep in his room 
Uh, I was literally sleeping in his room for a while. His dad was really cool and was like, sure, stay with us. Stayed at Marty's house for a little while. Um, And, you know, I, uh, the, the memories that I have of that is, is there was this one girl that I was using with and, and it's kind of funny how it gets worse the a disease gets worse when you, when you relapse or when you, uh, I didn't relapse cause I was never recovered. I, I never actually went through the work or anything, but I remember I was, I was doing heroin with this girl. We would do heroin in her basement and, um, it was a really dark situation and it was the first time I got introduced to speedballing. I had already tried shooting up Coke and I already tried shooting up heroin. Why not combine them? And, and do them both at the same time. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and and truthfully, like that was when I was like, oh yeah, this is it. This is another form of wow. Why Those would things. anyone not do this? This is a new thing. This is a new thing, right? <laughs> and uh, the memories that I have of being in Greensboro, aside from staying with with hockey teammates and still playing hockey and doing drugs and everything, is. Um, I was in this basement pretty much every day of the week for three months. Um, I would stay somewhere else, but then I would go in this basement and we would do speed balls all day. And, and I just remember her daughter, this 14 year old girl would run down the stairs uh, like every 30 minutes. And it was a dark situation. Like mm. the girl um, would struggle to find veins because uh, they were all collapsed from doing it for so long that, there'd be a lot of like bloody needles and stuff. Not the little girl. The, no. The yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. The girl that I was, I was spending yeah. time with Yeah, there, a lot of dirty needles around okay. the area, like from, from, from all that. And, and when this little 14 year old girl would run down the stairs, she would like throw the needles across the room and be like, Hey, she's coming downstairs. Like, and I was just sitting there like, what in the world is this? Like, how am I here right now? You know? And, uh, I, I just remember like after doing that for a certain amount of time, um, I, I had been withdrawing all day long and this was in March of 2011. I was withdrawing all day long because I didn't have money to get anything. And, and finally at night at like nine o'clock at night, we got a hold of some heroin and some Coke and I, and I had a couple bags of it, like more than enough to keep me going for a while. And I did my first shot and I did my first speedball. And while I was rushing, like while it was hitting me, I don't know how to explain it other than like mom, I had the phone to my ear and mom was like, hello. Hmm. And I guess something in me just, just overcame my mind and and called mom. and, And I was like, Hey, and she was like, Hey, you know, what's going on? You're sober. This is great. And, uh, I, I was like, I need to come home. And she was like, Oh no. And she was like, okay. She was like, how bad is it? And I was like, it's really bad. And she was like, all right. She's like, you can come home for tonight, but tomorrow you need to be gone. Interesting. And I drove home and I left all the drugs that I had picked up. And I was like, I need to go home. And I think people will be confused at the fact that that was a time that she did let you come home. Mm-hmm. I think it was, you know, a different scenario and, and we can certainly talk to her about that. And, you know, I think, I think at the end of the day that the framework of what to do is, is the same. I think 
mom is just one of those very intuitive people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for her, that was the right answer at that time might not be by the book for what we explained is the right thing to do. But, um, funny enough from, and I can't wait to tell more stories like this, but from a family member, from my perspective, that same night, um, mom, dad, and I, that, that was, I used to go over there once a week and, mm-hmm. and just watch Dad funny was TV and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and just be, be there with them. But, um, I, I was working and, um, I was over there that night and we always somehow just, you know, with it being our family ended up on these really deep conversations about life and, you know, how are things doing and checking in and just whatever, whatever the discussion was that night it was, and it was always great. And we always enjoyed everything. So you were a topic of the conversation that same night. I very vividly remember, um, us sitting in the room and just, you had a job at the time and we were so, I mean, we can get into that too, but we were so proud of you. And we just, you know, it was, you know, he's gone through this twice. He's doing so well. He's living on his own. There's, you know, we've gone on trips away and he's done fine on his own. And like all Chris of these, doing great. all of these great positive things. And, and I think it goes to show this is the third time around and we still had no clue. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's the power of it. And literally like where I'm getting ready to leave and, and there the phone rings mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's you. And, and so, on one end of the phone, we're joyous and celebrating and just being happy talking about you. And on the other end of the phone, you're, you're just, you're dying. You're, you're not, not in a good spot. You're ready to do this again. I mean, and it's fascinating to me. And that, that's what blows my mind is just at that point, um, we had all gone through our little family counseling, you know, at the, at the rehab facility. And we feel like we have a hold of this thing and, and that we know what we need to know. We didn't, we, we don't, I still don't, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's another huge reason for doing this is just, I, I learn something new every day. And in that moment, I feel like I'm fairly intuitive as well. It's like, Oh, he's fine. He's great. You know, no, he's not. Yeah. And, um, and then the next, however, five days, three days. However, it was three days. And I remember a nightmare. I came home and I remember this is why I kind of like, you know, people, the bottom is like, Oh, yeah. this is worse. I remember I, I was not homeless that time. I was almost homeless, but the time before the second time I went to rehab, I was actually, actually I had nowhere to go. Cause I was getting kicked out of that house the next day. Um, I just remember coming in the house and dad was cooking. Uh, I remember his back was turned and he was cooking and mom, came and gave me a hug. And I remember the, the lowest I've ever felt in my entire life was when I was hugging mom, hugging my own family member and feeling completely alone. And you're sitting there in your family's house and you're hugging your family member and you are alone. And there's not much of a lower place that you could possibly be like externally Sure, things can be really bad, but if you feel alone when someone who loves you is giving you a hug, that's sad. But but you were in your safe place again, so you knew you knew that that was your safe place. But you're not feeling your no, I didn't feel that. You know you're safe being there. And uh, I I went and and laid down, and I think I slept that night. And then the next day, I think it was really bad. My withdrawals were really bad. And all I remember is laying there and 
mom called you. Um, Megan was home. Megan was home. Dad and, and mom and Megan were like, you know, we love you yeah. and, and all this stuff. And uh, uh, they called you. And then I just remember laying on the bed. And I think you had gotten the whole family together. And you were like, we are going to show up for him right now and help him. I don't, yeah, I don't know if I've ever asked you your side of that story. Because the, the what I remember was Megan throughout most of this journey of yours was at school. So mm-hmm. she was gone. She didn't and, see and, and, much and of she, it at all. No. And, mm-hmm. and so she wouldn't know. And, and I think, yeah. And, and I saw bits and pieces, but you were, you know, you were here and then you were in Greensboro. So it, I, I knew enough and mm-hmm. um, it was slowly just killing everyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was brutal and and I was getting frustrated and I've gone through the gamut of emotions and I think we sit here and laugh about a lot of things because we've been through it (laughs) we're past it but I I remember um yeah you came home Megan was living at home and um obviously you know for the first time really I think seeing and we definitely will have to ask her her perspective but seeing you in the state and and in the absolute lowest state and she it was actually Megan that called me um, I think it was, let's call it like five o'clock, mm-hmm. um, one night and, um, you were in a very dark place and were in conflict somehow with mom and dad, likely just getting frustrated, whatever it was, you, you had done something enough that she drove away. She dro- she left the house and physically drove to the clubhouse area, mm-hmm. um, right outside the neighborhood. And, and for the first time, I mean, I mean, Megan's tough, right? Megan, Megan, especially on the exterior is just, you know, I'm good. I can handle anything. And it was the first time that she had ever expressed any complete vulnerability to Mm me, um, in, in a situation like that, where she said, you have to get over here. Mm -hmm. And, and I could sense in her voice that it was really bad. Um, you, and you were never, the thing about you is you're never like, no one was ever fearful of you doing anything really bad. You were always still, even in your kind of glazed faded state, you were always loving and, and all that. I think in this case, you were glazed more than you weren't. Um, but I don't think it was a matter of feeling like you were going to hurt anybody or do anything really bad, but the, the tone in her voice was, this is not okay. Like this is a bad situation. And so I, I dropped everything and, um, came right over. I, I don't even think I had music playing <laughs> in the car. I remember just thinking, I've got to fix this. Mm-hmm. That's my nature anyways. But I've got, I have to fix this. Like, this is so annoying. This has got to stop. I want to save my brother. I, I, I what can I do? This is getting and, old. You know, yeah, it was, it was really old, mm-hmm. but also for you, I, I'm, I'm frustrated by not knowing what to do. And I think I had learned about this disease as something being, you know, something that I wasn't allowed to engage with. Essentially. I'm not allowed to engage with this disease. He has to get there on his own. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm over that. I'm over mm-hmm. that. And, and I know in, in the back of my mind, I had this grand plan, but all I remember pulling into the driveway was this is the first time. I, I don't know why I thought of this. This is the first time in a, in a while Megan was at school. I was working, you know, everyone's so busy. Dad's traveling. Mom, mom's doing all the things she always does. And, and, and you were in and out. And it was the first time in a while that the five of us had been under the same roof, mm-hmm. just physically. And, and I had these crazy, awesome thoughts about us way back in the day, being little kids on Cuddy Court and listening to music. I had the most peaceful thoughts 
pulling into a driveway. And I, I don't know how to describe it better than that, that I felt so peaceful walking into the house. Wow. And I remember saying to myself, we all just need to sit together. And my, I walked in the house, um, dad was watching baseball. Yeah. I don't, dad was watching television glazed over. The Red Sox. Yeah, of course the Red Sox. (laughs) Uh, Robot, um, said hello. He's there. Walk into the kitchen. Mom's, I think at the dining table, just sitting completely just, yes looked like a shell of herself, um, which is very rarely happens with her. And, um, I, I just, I was on a mission and I didn't know what I was doing. Megan wasn't, um, in my plain sight. I think she might've been back in her bedroom, but, and then I, I said, where's Chris to mom? And she said, he's, you know, over there in the, in the living room. And so I, I remember around in the corner and you're sitting there on the couch and you had your hoodie up all the way and you're just slouched down with the blanket and you were glazed. And I'm like, this is not my family. Like this is such bullshit. Like, I'm, I'm just so over this. And so I remember I sat with you, I hugged you. You and I have always had that really deep connection where I felt like I could get to you. Um, and you really didn't respond. It was no, there was no response. I was trying to be, I don't know what I was trying to do, but, um, I spoke to you for a bit stop talking, you're watching television and slowly, you know, within three minutes, let's call it, you stood up and you just walked away. <laughs> and I'm like, all right. <laughs> okay, great. Now what do I do? Um, Mission failed. So, yeah. I was like, fail, fail so hard. So I, I, I didn't know really the best plan, but again, the, I stayed so peaceful and I just felt okay. And I, I felt like this was going to be a turning point. I, I hate to say that I called that cause I didn't, but I felt very grounded and peaceful and went right into mom and dad. And I said, meet me in Chris's room. You went, you went into your room. So meet me in Chris's room. Didn't know where Megan was. So we all kind of went this way. And then I found her, she was in her bathroom, just kind of, she had no idea. Um, I think she was trying to avoid it honestly. And, and so she was like, yeah, what, what do you need? So we all went into your bedroom. Um, and I tell all the details of the story because it's, it is the pivotal moment really. in you getting better, hopefully mm-hmm. that you feel the same way. And, um, simple. We laid on the bed and all four of us at all, all corners, your face down on your pillow. And you just, you didn't say anything. We just rubbed your back. Mm-hmm. And I, how simple, right? But it goes back to the love thing. It was literally the first time in that long that we had all kind of come together. There was no other agenda other than we're here for you. And that was without saying anything. And then I think eventually we all very quietly, it was a very intimate family moment um, to share, but um, we all quietly just rubbed your back and your legs and your feet and, and whatever. And I remember you saying something to the effect of, I have, I have holes in my brain. I'm, I'm such a piece of shit. I'm so sorry. And you're just bawling your eyes out. And we all cried together. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a strange way, there's a, there's so much love mm-hmm. around and I felt that. And I think all of us felt that. I did too. Um, and yeah. And I, and I, and somehow and such a long winded story, but I, I really like that to me was my turning point of, I know this is going to be better soon. Um, and then the next morning was <laughs> another really bad day to get you, to get you back to where you needed to go. But that aside, that was, it was amazing. 
and you slept and I think you calmed down and, and things got better. And then, well, that night mom called a doctor. Yeah. She was on the phone with a doctor and I remember she was standing at the door and she was like, uh, the, I just remember her saying the doctor asked her a question and she was like, Chris, how bad is it? What were you doing? Like, what drugs were you doing? And I was like, everything. And she was like, no, but what were you doing? And I was like, Xanax, ecstasy, uh, alcohol, heroin, cocaine, all of it. And she was like, how much of all of it? And I was like, a lot. And she was like, okay. So she got on the phone with the doctor <laughs> and the doctor was like, I remember hearing him say like something and she goes, we need to get you some drugs yeah. right now. Yeah. And, uh, the doctor was like, you need to get something in his system. So he doesn't go into like, a, he doesn't have a seizure or whatever. Yeah. And that night, the night before I went into detox, um, I remember Megan or mom pulled out some money or whatever. And Megan drove me to a pill dealer and Megan drove me to pick up two Roxy's. And, um, I, I, the doctor, thank God knew what to say because that got me through the night. And I remember it's, I was miserable. I was miserable. I was miserable. And as soon as I did those two pills, uh, me and Megan were listening to a band that we used to love. And like, I was like singing along and like, <laughs> I love, you know, like Life I'm back, is good. I'm back. And, uh, but I still knew it, I wasn't going there to get high, to continue to get high. Like I was done. Did you know point. that? Yeah, I knew. Yeah. But I also knew that I was going to get high again and I didn't want to, which is the scariest part of all of it is I didn't feel like there was any possible chance I could stay sober. Crazy. So you're feeling good and you, that, that led into detox, which was, that was a Friday, I believe, because I remember after we laid with you and we went through that, we, um, I just, dad was traveling the next day and I knew mom needed help. And, um, we, we took you to detox and it was a new facility and it was, um, it was a scary day. Mm -hmm. It was a scary day. What do you remember about that day? All I remember is going in there and um, they wanted to take me to a, a, a psych ward. Yeah. And I was just like, I'm not going to a psych ward. I need to get detoxed. And it's like, oh, I know what I need at that point because I'm <laughs> it's like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, like I did know that like I didn't want to go into a psych ward and get like locked up in a room and put on weird pills. Like I wanted to get put on Suboxone, which is a, a something to help you with withdrawals. And I just wanted to like get something to help me taper down before I went into rehab. Cause yeah. we had found a rehab to go to in Texas yeah. at that point. So I remember going in being all gung ho about it and like, yeah, let's get this over with. And then like the intake process took a while. And I just remember smoking a cigarette outside. I think you, reminded me of a girl that I met who was a, a addicted to crack this like older chick that was I remember I don't remember our conversation but I remember it was profound and it was after I had called you guys when you left and I was like get me the hell out of here like get me out of here we I didn't ever leave. leave oh yeah we didn't ever leave we were yeah. in the we were in the waiting room the whole time and, and I called you and I was like you better get me out I of was here. like of course he knows my cell phone by heart because you called me probably seven or eight times throughout the day. And it was, we probably got there at 11 and left afternoon time and you were ruthless and you weren't allowed to use phones. Yeah. So it was kind of like, an, and, and 
talked my way into it. We we pulled up. I remember we pulled up to the to the facility, and you were angry. Yeah, <laughs> you were angry. You did not want any part of this. I mean, I think you were ready to get better, but but as far as going through what you knew you were probably about to go through, you just you weren't happy. It was a very scary thing. And and as we pulled up and um, we accidentally drove by the the psych ward and that triggered you Mm -hmm. to think that we were going to bring you there. We were like, no, we're not. So you were very angry and you were hitting your head. um, And then you got out of the car and uh, I used to do that a lot. I would punch myself in the face and hit my head against the dashboard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, you got out of the car and you said, I'm going to kill everybody in there. Oh shit. Oh my gosh. But it was more the anger that we knew you had. It wasn't, you didn't mean that for Mm -hmm. real. It was just, you were very angry and you, you walked in ahead of us and mom and I just grabbed hands and and walked together. And I, I had, I honestly had no idea what to expect when we walked in because you were not in sight anymore. You had gone in there. We walked into the lobby. I don't want to be here, but I'm going to go in here first. I'm going to go in here anyways. Uh, we, We walked into the lobby and you weren't there. And I look over to the left and all I see is this door and it's, um, you know, steel and bulletproof glass and all this stuff behind the, the receptionist. And there were cops bringing people in the back door. And I'm like, all right, that, well, there he, he's, he's arrested. Done. <laughs> There's no way that he was that angry and came in here and, and is good. And um, so we go up to check in and um, couldn't see you. And we're trying to give your name and, and, uh, they're, they're so sweet. And, and I'm just watching this scary scene of, you know, I just, there's so many things that go through your head and yeah. I just didn't know. And you came, you walked, you walked up right behind us from the bathroom. Like, Hi, uh, my name is Chris Berry and I'd like to check in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I just, I remember Very bipolar. A few, yeah, feeling so angry at you then. Cause I'm like, are you kidding me That's right heroin now? Like, and cocaine withdrawals. Unbelievable. Like, just up unbelievable. And down and up and down. So you, you got back there and we went back there a few times. It was, it was a quite the back and forth all day, but you, you found the phone, you called me so many times and I just said, Chris, you got it. You know, you got to do this. And, um, I think after that many hours and after mom and I, every time we had, we went back, we had to be screened. It was, it was just not, not a great day, but at the end of it to, they called mom back only and they had a plan for you. They found a bed and I'm, I'm sitting there just trying to keep it together, trying to keep down. Yeah, you guys and, must've been going through hell. Yeah. And it, it just was a long day too, especially after the night before that, but, um, still wasn't worried. Still didn't feel, I just, just was exhausted. And, and she came back out from, from there and just eyes swollen nurses around her. And, uh, and she said, you know, you, she looked at me and she said, you need to go back there. And I remember looking at her with her eyes swollen. I'm like, I'm not going back there. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why do you need me to go back there? And, uh, and she, she said, no, just go. And so I, I did the whole thing, screened through the door and, and, and I walked through the door and, and there you are after the last two times we had gone back there and you're yelling and you're just, please get me out of here. I promise I'm fine. You know, it was a complete 180 and you're standing there with arms wide and you said, hi, Jackie, calm as can be. And I remember being like, wanting to cuss you out (laughs) (laughs) and being like, hi, Chris. And we, we hugged and you said, I'm, I'm going to get better. I'm really sorry for everything I've done. I know what I need to do. I'm going to get better. And I just 
was like, wow. And so we went and we sat in that room and, and the woman that you talked about was there and just sitting like a statue. I have my own story about her because I don't believe she was real, but that's, people will think I'm crazy with that. She but, probably wasn't. But you're, you're telling me, you're all of a sudden being so peaceful and knowing what you have to do and being okay with whatever the next step was and, and her sitting there without saying a word, almost as if she wasn't, I mean, she, she, at one point I was worried about her because she wasn't functioning and then you weren't acknowledging her, but you were talking about her. You said, you know, me and I don't remember her name. I think it was April, maybe went to go get a cigarette. We started talking about how, you know, we just, we don't want to, we don't want to do drugs anymore. And you said, as soon as she said that, I was like, yeah. And we both agreed. Yeah, we're not going to do it. And we came back in and all of a sudden you had changed. And so I, it was I'm looking at this woman and I'm like, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> you just came from nowhere. I never noticed her before when we came back there and, and whoever she was, she, your conversation, I felt like changed things. And so from then on out and, you know, until you're sitting here and we're talking about this today, like that was the moment that things changed for me and mm -hmm. what I saw. So I, I, as much as that was the worst day ever, that was like my best day ever. Cause I just, and I remember being like, thank God you smoke. Because if, if she, if you didn't, <laughs> you wouldn't have gone out and had a cigarette. So, um, just incredible times. And then I think that was what kickstarted the, the good times. Yeah. And I just remember leaving there after four days of detox or whatever. And, um, mom, flew to San Antonio with me because I went to a treatment facility in Kerrville, Texas or Hunt, Texas. And Kerrville, Texas is this like recovery mecca that I didn't yeah. know about. It's like one of the best re recovery towns in the world and no exaggeration. And uh, I remember calling Reed, the guy that introduced himself as recovered to me. And I remember calling him on the flight and I was like, Hey Reed, I just want to let you know that like I got out of detox and I'm going into treatment. And he was like, where are you going? And I was like, Oh, it's called. And as soon as I was about to tell him what it was called, um, the phone died. And I'm so glad the phone died because he would have spilled some really crazy stuff that, that I didn't know about. Um, I found out later that the person that he made me listen to on speaker tapes that I got like, infatuated with actually basically created the entire culture in Kerrville and at that rehab really? facility. And he was getting, I called him in treatment and I was like, you won't believe this. You won't believe this. Like, you know, the guy that you made me listen to, whatever, uh, you know, he worked here for 15 years and this place is so much different. And he was like, he was like, the phone died when I was, when, <laughs> when you, when you were about to tell me where you went and like, if you would have told me, I, I, I would have been able to inform you wow. about that. So, yeah. So I remember riding from San Antonio to Kerrville and I just remember being pissed again, like, cause you're up and down. And I mm -hmm. remember telling, telling mom, like, Texas is going to have a bunch of, you know, rednecks here with no teeth. And I hate this place and I hate you and I hate everybody. And she was just kind of like calm. And, and I finally got it. I finally got into treatment and, uh, um, the, the one moment that I will never forget for the rest of my life that I, I went in there knowing for a fact that I was going to get out and get high, not wanting to get high, knowing for a fact that I was going to get high because I had already gone to treatment twice. I had gone through this process. 
I had done everything people told me to do. And I knew for a fact that I was going to get high. And I told mom that I said, I'm going to go in here. I'm going to get out. I may stay sober for 30 to 60 to 90 days. And I'm going to get high again. And I, and I don't want to do it. It's not worth it. Mm. And I, after a couple of days in, uh, I was still in detox when I got there. After a couple of days of being in there, there was a, a, a class being taught about, uh, you know, the first step of, of addiction and, and alcoholism. And, and uh, when people break it down properly, it's broken down as a as a illness of, of the body and the mind and the spirit. Some people believe it's just body and mind, but some people believe it's body, mind and spirit. And, and um, it shows uh, on the board, this guy, Joe, his name's Joe H. I still know him today and he's an amazing person. He was breaking down that the body had, you have, you have a physical allergy to drugs and alcohol and, and, and you have this lack of, of control over the amount you take. And then below it, he was writing mind and he wrote, uh, uh, no choice. You have lost the power of choice in drinking or, or using. And, and it talks about it being a mental obsession about how, you know, your mind tells you that you're going to be able to control and enjoy it no matter how many times you've had experiences showing you that you can't. And then, and then below that is, is the spirit part of, of being irritable, restless and discontent and uh, having, you know, this, this hole within you that, that drugs and alcohol, you know, fulfill and, and, and fix, you know, and it was the first time I'd been to treatment twice. I'd been, to a bunch of places where they teach about this and um, everywhere I went when breaking down this first step of addiction and alcoholism, people would just say, Are, you're an addict and your life is unmanageable. Is that true? And I would be like, well, yes, of course, but no one ever broke down what the actual disease was. And it was the first time someone did it. And I walked up to him after he taught that class and I gave him a hug and I broke down in tears and I said, no one has ever done this for me. No one has ever shown me what the problem is. And I was like, and I, like, I know that I'm going to be okay now. And how simple, right? And it was, it was, yeah, someone's telling you what your problem is. And that was enough for me to understand that I was in the right place and I knew I could get better. And I was like, you remind me of this guy named Chris R that, that I've listened to a bunch of tapes about. And he started laughing and he goes, man, that guy worked here for 15 years. He's one of my mentors and he's one of, you know, wow. one of my closest friends. And I just looked at him and I was like, what it is going on? It all came full circle. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing your story. And mm -hmm. I think next time it's important that we talk about how you got better Yeah, and, and expand on that. And, um, we have a lot to say and a lot of people to bring in. And I think, the bottom line being that this thing is a disease, that there is a way to approach it the best way. <laughs> There's not an, an easy answer, but um, certainly excited to to go on this journey with you. And it's going to be it's going to be awesome. And I hope that anybody listening um, is open to hearing um, Chris's Chris's story of recovery and um, and understands that um, there are some critical things. So family, friends. Addicts, anyone? <laughs> we'll continue next time. <laughs>